0: Is public philosophy primarily about bringing the insights of academic philosophy to a greater public, or is it about interrogating the very nature of philosophy such that how we do public philosophy changes academic philosophy
1: and
2: how we understand it? You're listening to good is in the details i'm Gwendolyn dalski
1: and i'm rudy salo
2: in this episode we are doing a lot of philosophy talk we have two philosophy professors joining the pod and they have their own podcast they are the hosts of overthink podcast very cool podcast for anyone who wants to know more about philosophy we talk about we start out talking about animal cognition and rudy was a bit horrified well no i guess you're not horrified that spiders can actually have feelings
1: I mean i I spent most of the episode listening and learning and just kind of soaking everything in, and I do think that the fact that we talked about the possibility, just the possibility of spiders having feelings sent a little bit of morbid feelings through me. so I kind of was uh, kind of a little detached during the episode because that that bothered me because <laughs> I, I don't I don't like spiders, and quite frankly, I like to kill them when I see them. so I felt very put on the spot because I was amongst three philosophers. And then all of a sudden I hear that spiders might have feelings. I was a little bit more silent on this episode, which maybe some audience members would like that. So this, this might be a perfect episode if you want a little less Rudy. in your.
2: No, no, no. But this, this episode is great because the hosts of Overthink podcast, Dr. Ellie Anderson and Dr. David Pena Guzman, they use philosophy to cover a wide range of topics and they use a lot of theory. So when they were joining, us on this podcast, we had the opportunity to talk about many subjects. We talked a little bit about critical race theory. We talked about free speech on campus. We talked about relationships, gaslighting, and really the goal was to show how philosophy can be used in this podcast format and also what they are learning as philosophers using podcasting as a way to do public philosophy and keep people engaged in thinking. So yeah, we cover a lot. It was very cool.
1: Yeah. What I learned from the episode is that I really f- just, you know, learning, and you brought a very good point. We always kind of go back to Socrates and the time of Socrates and the discussions and the philosophical dialogues. And it's very, very clear that who in- whoever invented podcasting was probably a philosophy major. So I'm pretty sure, because this, this is the medium for you people. <laughs> for you
2: people. Well, philosophy means love of wisdom. It literally means it. And so that's a pretty big ballpark. And whenever somebody earns their PhD, the PhD stands for philosophy doctorate. So if you have a philosophy, or I'm sorry, so if you have a doctorate in biology, if you have a doctorate in history, you are a philosopher. So that's why it's a pretty large ballpark. Okay. (laughs) Let's talk philosophy and podcasting. So, for this podcast, we have a lawyer and three philosophers. How are you feeling, Rudy? Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and could you introduce yourselves? Maybe Ellie go first. Great. Yeah. I'm Ellie Anderson. Where are you teaching? What's your area of expertise? And also, welcome back because you have guest hosted what was it? <laughs> three pods. You know, the one we did with Damiana is still, mm-hmm. when I look at the analytics, that's the number one. Show. What? It is the oh my one. gosh,
0: Rudy. I'm so sorry. No, 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 no it's, <laughs> it's bad right now.
1: Listen, I, I, I'm I, like I said before we started this, I, I can't talk in, about anything sexual, and that's clearly what our audience wants to hear about. So <laughs> I'm, I'm not that offended by our audience members that that's all they want to hear about. <laughs> well, but
0: that's a, it's especially wonderful to hear that Gwen because as you know, it was your original interview with Damiana on your previous podcast that inspired David and me we really? To start our podcast. Yeah, because yes, we were listening to that episode on our road trip to Ashland, Oregon, and we were like, we should do a podcast too.
2: Oh, well, that's great. So just for our listeners out there, it's season one. I think the title is How to Be a Femdom, and Ellie and I went to a professional dominatrix, uh, Damiana Chi, and we went to her <laughs> dungeon in downtown LA. This is pre-COVID. Yes. And we had a chance to look around. I think there's even a couple photos on the Instagram.
1: Can I ask a silly question? Did you guys have to put on masks even though this was pre-COVID or is that part of the whole religion thing? Is that, that's not funny, right? That's, sorry. I'm
2: Later lying. that night we did.
1: Yeah, okay. <laughs> That's enough. That's enough of that.
2: <laughs> okay. Oh, so I'm sorry, Ellie. So yeah, what is your area of expertise and you teach? I teach at Pomona College in Claremont,
0: California. And my areas of expertise are 20th century continental philosophy and feminist philosophy. I specialize in phenomenology and philosophy of love. Awesome.
2: David, how about you? Uh,
3: Well, um, my name is David Peña Guzman, and I teach at San Francisco State University. I went to graduate school with Ellie. That's where we met a long time ago, now going on a decade. And a few years ago, I moved to the Bay Area to teach, and I specialize like Ellie in European philosophy from the 19th and 20th century but I also specialize in the philosophy of science. So I straddle oh. this line between teaching sort of philosophical critiques of science, as well as philosophy of science uh, more directly. So, And
0: David has a new book cognition. coming out on animal cognition. Oh,
3: well, not just yet. I think it will come out <laughs> next year. And it is a combination of sort of those two traditions. It's phenomenology and theories of animal cognition put together.
2: You you know, so David, I'm going to ask what you think about this. A while ago, one of my friends from graduate school, Dr. Drew Dalton, he and I were having this conversation about, what do you think in a hundred years from now, people will look back on what we're doing right now and be horrified or think it's just so stupid? My answer was- I think that we're going to be able to predict earthquakes and in the future, they're going to look back on us and say, you mean they just waited for it to happen? They had no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like, that's so stupid. His answer was, he thinks that we are going to know so much more about animal cognition that it's going to be horrifying to think of the way in which animals are treated. What do you think about that answer?
3: Yeah, I so I think I'm biased here, but I definitely think that that's the case already there's been a number of findings in fields like cognitive neuroscience, affective neuroscience that show that all kinds of animals have emotional and mental states that from a philosophical standpoint carry ethical weight even um, cats oh yeah and i, I mean beyond <laughs> even cats you know the sort of uh, aliens of the natural world who live amongst <laughs> us but i hear i mean even if you move down the sort of great chain of being to use language that is definitely outdated. If you get even to insects, for example, there's a lot of research now on insects having consciousness, uh, maybe even very rudimentary affective states. Uh, There is research coming out of Australia now about what is called plant neurobiology, which is, it just like pushes this to a whole new level. So I agree with uh, that assessment that we will look back and be truly horrified by the way in which we relate to animals.
2: You know, because I tell my students in teaching is that one of the reasons why it's so important to keep up with the inquiry that philosophy is a practice. It's not, you know, just something you learn about has happened. But it's because we can look back 50 years, 100 years, a couple hundred years and say, wow, what were they thinking? Which means that we have to be humble enough to know that right now we are doing something absolutely bonkers and that people in the future are going to be horrified. Wait, so can see. Wait, hold on. Rudy's worried about all the spiders he's killed now. <laughs> <laughs> so funny you should mention and that. the
1: plants. It's he's so eaten. funny you should mention that because after I transfer my consciousness into a computer so I can live forever, what you're saying is in a hundred years I'm gonna look back and feel bad rather than all the extreme joy that I get from killing spiders because I'm deathly afraid of spiders. I hate spiders. I can't stand them. They're like every time I crush one, I feel good about myself. So you're saying if it's <laughs>
2: couple, I crush. Well, I
1: think
3: by the time you upload yourself to the cloud, you won't be able to have any emotions to begin with. So the the question (laughs) is... um, But... I'll be a philosopher. What? (laughs) Oh, maybe so, yes. You'll be um, the kind of classical philosopher that Ellie and I, and I assume Gwen, try not to be. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Those ones that live on the outer edges of the earth. Do you you guys remember that from... um, Oh, God. Which dialogue is it? The dialogue where we all end the... God. It's the Platonic dialogue where there's the myth at the end where all of the philosophers, like the the best people, live on the outer edges of the earth. But then the philosophers lose their bodies entirely and just like sort of go off into the ether. I think it's Plato. I think it's I'm 2021 and this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the fact that
1: these two podcasts coming together, I think, is what you just described, right? And I'm uh, I'm in the earth, and you guys are floating. Oh on. yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm to keep this, in this is level.
2: This is the second time Rudy has been um, on the pod with three philosophers. Let's dive into- It in is the to... Beto for the record. I just- oh, okay. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so let's see, maybe Ellie, I'll direct this at you or to you. So you wanted to start a podcast. What are you learning about being a philosopher in the realm of podcasting? Yeah. Mm.
0: It's interesting because- I think what I'm learning is that my inclination is to just use the podcast as a way to report on things that David and I already think, but we're realizing that like that's not all there is to podcasting and that shouldn't be all there is to podcasting. And so I think this also is a question about public philosophy. Is public philosophy primarily about bringing the insights of academic philosophy to a greater public or is it about... interrogating the very nature of philosophy such that how we do public philosophy changes academic philosophy and how we understand it. And so I think sort of that's something that I'm beginning to think about more. David and I originally started the podcast thinking it would be more of a genuine conversation between the two of us. And we quickly realized that would be pretty inaccessible for a general audience because we went to the same PhD program. We have all of these shortcuts that we can use with our jargon that we don't need to sort of justify and unpack. And that would be, I think, pretty alienating for a lot of people. And so then quickly we realize, oh, actually we need to be a lot more pedagogical in the podcast to define our terms, to give people background. So I think that's been successful and important. And at the same time, we're realizing like, yeah, it doesn't just need to be pedagogical though too. We want to bring back some of that conversation. And so I think in some of our recent episodes, we've been trying to strike a balance of debate and pedagogy more, which is exciting.
2: Yeah. I mean, in the spirit. Of, since you both study continental philosophy, I mean, what I'm thinking about is where you have all those pictures of, you know, of Sartre and Beauvoir, Camus, that they're all out at cafes and they're, you know, drinking massive quantities of caffeine during the day. But they're, <laughs> and they're alcohol. Yeah. Yes. yes.
0: Sartre is on speed
2: too. I know. <laughs> and you have to wonder, it's like, hmm, I wonder why they wrote about anxiety. Why was that such a topic? It's like, if you have <laughs> much, as I'm drinking my bang energy drink right now, it's not even noon. <laughs> oh my uh, God. I <laughs> <laughs> I have a <laughs> caffeine problem. If I don't sound like an auctioneer, I'm not happy. So, <laughs> um, but that, that idea of, I, I think even from the ancient Greeks, the whole notion was public philosophy, going out into the space, having this dialogue. And then you lose that for the ivory tower for so long mm-hmm. and where knowledge was kind of kept, um, you know, even in the medieval thinking that all thinking was thinking about the divine, you know, it was just so specific. And then as continental philosophers, you know that it was... About going out in the cafes writing plays making it accessible that philosophy is not just for the few but it is it's for everyone to be able to Mm -hmm. tap into and i think podcasting is now has that potential
0: In fact, Sartre and Beauvoir and Merleau-Ponty, right, had a journal and they wrote newspaper articles. They were interviewed on the radio all the time. And so I actually just got a grant from Pomona to tie existentialism, which I'm teaching next semester, to public philosophy. And so I'm going to be teaching my students how to podcast and do YouTube Mm -hmm. philosophy videos in the spirit of the existentialists that we're reading, because that's sort of the equivalent today, right, of the things that they were doing back in the 1940s. Mm -hmm.
2: I love teaching. Teaching no exit. That's one of my Sarsha's plays. Like yeah. the students all really get into that. And it makes me so happy because it's so different from just, you know, a regular philosophical text, but it still achieves that existential aim of, you know, everyone being involved. And yeah, no. So uh, for existentialism, I think that, that always goes well, that, that text always goes over well for me when I'm teaching it. Mm -hmm. Um, David, so I'll I'll throw it over to you. What are you learning about being a philosopher through this medium of podcasting?
3: Well, I mean, keeping in line with this discussion about the communal side of philosophy, um, one way in which I think about it is in terms of the distinction between process and product. Uh, You know, there is the process of philosophizing. And then, you know, in theory, you can come up with a product that you put out to the public. And I think under conditions of the modern university system. We teach our students to really only focus on the product, right? Either Mm. they give us an essay that's already polished and we never even know how they came to write it, or we share with them essays and books that we expect them to read without really having an insight into the process. And one thing that podcasting does is that it brings to the foreground that process of talking through a problem in community. So, you know, in this case, um, the four of us were here chatting, and you get to see a very different phase of philosophy. And it's a phase that's always been there, but that I think has been mm-hmm. repressed. You know, you mentioned with the ancient Greeks, the focus on the public square, the agora, of going out into the public and and talking to other people, that peripatetic tradition of, no, go outside and engage strangers you know in the medieval period you had what were called disputations these public debates that happened at some of the first european universities but mm-hmm. still it was a communal activity so even though it was this reflection on the divine highly abstract highly uh, concept driven it still was a practice or or i think about the modern period there's a very long Epistolary tradition of people doing philosophy by writing letters to one another, like private mm-hmm. letters. And now we look back at them and we think of them as a sort of community of letters. And so I, I think we, I, I would love to get to a point where we can talk about, and maybe we are there already, a sort of community of philosophical podcasting. And I think this would be one example of that.
2: Yeah. So just um, as, as Elliot said, like going back and defining terms. So, David, I'll ask you, what does it mean to do philosophy? When you say Ugh. these philosophical terms are these ideas. So what <laughs> yeah what is could you or give a give an example? So for the non philosophers listening to this, what do we mean by
1: And me. Don't go for, don't for And for Rudy, <laughs> for Rudy this, this is a right question, uh, intended
3: for Rudy, but Address to Ellie and <laughs> David. <laughs> so, I mean, I'll plug some of my own research here. Weirdly enough, uh, because I just published a piece in a journal about this very question called "The Groundlessness of Philosophy," where I and my co-author, Dr. Jessica Block, who lives in Baltimore and also went to graduate school with Ellie and I, we mm-hmm. make the argument that, in fact, there is no such thing as a transhistorical, transgeographical definition of philosophy. You just cannot do it, you might be able to capture a lot of things under whatever definition you give, but the boundaries are very porous. So you mentioned Sard's, uh No Exit, you know, it doesn't really fit any traditional definition of philosophy, right. yet it is frequently taught mm-hmm. in philosophical academic settings. And so I think we have to be really uh, humble and very open-minded about what philosophy is and the fact that we can't really demarcate it as much as we want to shouldn't be a reason to flee away from it. For me, that's a reason to sort of run directly to it. But we do say it's uh, we use a, a Greek term, aporia, or aporia, depending on how people pronounce it, which just means like an irresolvable dilemma. And I think that philosophy is aporetic for that reason. It's great, and we can talk about it, and we can't do it, but we can't really tell you what it is. You just have to sort of jump into the element.
2: Ellie, what is, when, you're, when you've when you worked on the podcast, is there a theme or a topic that has really resonated? Where, where have you gotten the most amount of feedback and was any of it a surprise to you?
0: Yeah. um, I think three episodes come to mind that I think have really resonated with listeners. And I have to say, I'm not actually surprised by these three being uh, among our most popular. One is an episode we did on why millennials love homemaking, where we talked about the millennial obsession with plants. You can see my Monstera plant is currently right next to me in a room full of plants. And the millennial practices of, you know, sort of trying to make a home in apartments that usually we don't own because we can't afford to own them. (laughs) And we talked about Mariano Ortega's concept of home tax and a number of other things, David brought in Epicurus's approach to philosophizing through plants. And I think listeners really just enjoyed that and felt seen by that topic (laughs) (laughs) Um, because it integrates aesthetics with social and political issues, with philosophical psychology. And then our other two that come to mind are the conspiracy theories episode with Brian Keeley, because that came out very shortly after the January 6th riot at the Capitol. And so a lot of people were seeking to understand why that happened and how it was related to conspiracy theories. And my colleague, Brian Keeley, is one of the foremost philosophers of conspiracy theories. And then also our episode on gaslighting, I think, hit home with a lot of people because it's a concept that gets mentioned a lot in public discourse today, Mm -hmm. but that gets articulated a lot through philosophy in ways that people don't fully understand and so you might hear the concept gaslighting or hear the term gaslighting and not understand what's going on and so listeners can go to that episode for a philosophical deep dive into, <laughs> into <laughs> what it is
2: yeah because I think that there's two levels to it there's that emotional response when you realize you're on the receiving end of it but I don't think you realize you're on the receiving end of it until afterwards and then there's also mm-hmm. the logic of it when you look at something like critical thinking and you can see how arguments are constructed and then you're Able to actually analyze what you said and then what the person said back to you and see yes. how it doesn't follow. But why it's so hard to do that is because if you're on the receiving end of it, it's, it, it'll make you feel doubt yourself and like you're a little bit crazy.
3: Yeah. And one thing that we talked about in that episode in particular is the possibility that some gaslighters, uh, not just the gaslightees, might not even fully know what they're doing because of the way in which society is already molded by all kinds of systems of power to the point where we, we don't realize the extent of the harm that we cause. Although, of course, you know, here that's a false symmetry because our focus should be on the gaslight tea. But it does raise this really interesting question about the interaction between emotion and reason in a very volatile setting.
2: Right. I would love to know what um, what you think about the discussion that has been going on about free speech and university campuses. And not only that, but the governor of Florida, DeSantis, just recently signed into, I don't know if it's a, a law or what he did, but something where people in public universities who are teaching, they needed to state what it was that they were
1: yeah. you know, teaching because
2: this fear of indoctrinating. And I'll just, I'll throw out there my thing. This is why critical thinking is so important. It is true that when people go to university, they tend to come out more liberal. The causal factor that they're arguing is not because it's indoctrination because of the professors, <laughs> but with critical thinking, you can look at, well, are there other potential causal factors? And there is another potential causal factor and that when you're in a university, you tend to be surrounded by people who are not like you because it's a draw. And so you become friends with people who are outside of your town, your group, your first language, your ethnicity, your religion, and that kind of interaction will enhance your capacity for empathy and might make you a bit more left-leaning. So it's not necessarily the material that is being taught that you're being indoctrinated. And not, let's not forget, there's departments, business departments, engineering departments, you know what I mean? Philosophy
3: like, departments. Yeah, <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, true, true. So that, that's my take on it. But I'm wondering, you know, I mean, since the Western philosophy, we have Socrates who is executed essentially for, you know, for free speech, um, for challenging the day. I mean, I was thinking about DeSantis, who mm-hmm. is like an updated mellitus, kind of. Yeah. But how are you handling or what are your thoughts about this question of indoctrination and free speech on university campuses? And where's the line when it comes to free speech?
0: I want to give David the first pass at this question, but I (laughs) want to just briefly plug that I saw this incredible tweet a couple weeks ago where somebody, a conservative Twitter guy, (laughs) said something like, if Socrates were alive today, he would have been canceled. And then somebody else was like, you know what happened to Socrates, right? Like, I mean, he was, he was executed, so he was canceled in sort of the yeah. most <laughs> severe possible way.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, over to you, David.
2: <laughs> Hemlock. Hemlock. He drank poison. Okay, go on.
3: No, I mean, yeah, he, he did do that. Although there are people who argue that he was ultimately put to death because of his defense of totalitarianism and his, you know, anti-democratic politics. But that's a, a, for another time. Um, uh, That's it's such a difficult question. And we did just record an episode on cancel culture. And there are some connections here in terms of this fear that universities are factories of socialism that are creating oversensitive students that just want to censor everything they don't personally like. And that doesn't align with the worldview of the so-called left. And I mean, one thing that I will add here that strikes me as essential is the thing that the right is focusing on right now as the new boogeyman, which is this thing called critical race theory, right? This is at the heart of Governor DeSantis' Project to try to uh, de-liberalize the universities in Florida, and it's at the heart of um, what is it H, uh, House Bill like two thirty three or so that requires students to register their political views with the state as a way of ensuring so-called intellectual diversity on campuses to prove that you know conservatives are really excluded and underrepresented. But what what strikes me as important is that the thing they chose to focus on is this thing called critical race theory, and in some ways it's a very smart label for the right to focus on. Because just rhetorically, it has the words critical, which makes it seem as if you're criticizing America, you are anti-American. So just from a PR perspective, you know, kind of like mm. a, a pretty powerful move. But it also has the word theory, which is associated with a lot of things that get coded as indicating the West Coast elites, right? The overeducated uh, people who are seen as controlling Washington and controlling Hollywood uh, on two ends on on the two coasts of the U.S. Uh, in D.C. and in L.A. And what's interesting about this is that the right doesn't say, look, we don't want to talk about race in, or racism in university campuses because they know that the PR for that is a little trickier to sell. And so they choose this thing called critical race theory that just sounds really bad if you're conservative leaning. And so I'm, I'm really interested in the kind of symbolic dimension around the choice of the thing that gets constructed Mm -hmm. as the new boogeyman. Uh, But Ellie, I'm I'm curious about your thoughts here and, um, you know, Rudy also, around the politics of, of this moment.
0: Well, I'll say I only became aware of the rights attack against critical race theory maybe... A month or two ago because I was just coming out of the pandemic. I'd recently been vaccinated and that meant that I could suddenly hang out with people, you know, indoors again, but it also meant that I could hang out with my parents' friends and my partner's parents' friends, boomers. Um, no offense to boomers. I love my parents <laughs> and, my, and my partner's mother and a lot of other boomers. But I had this like kind of classic, weird, intergenerational experience where I was at a dinner party and this old white boomer man asked me about the indoctrination on college campuses and was just like, oh, you're a college professor. Tell me about this. I hear that they're teaching critical race theory at all universities now and I was like oh yeah you know like I teach critical race theory and you could just see that he was like what he was so scandalized and I couldn't understand at first because I was like what's wrong with critical race theory and it became very clear to me that he just watched a lot of Fox News and come to think that critical race theory was as David you put it this bogeyman it was just such a strange encounter (laughs) yeah but I I think yeah I I mean I think
2: Gwen you mentioned that a lot of yeah (laughs) <laughs> can, you, can you really quickly, since, since you do teach it, I mean, something I noticed when I've looked at the media is that people are using critical race theory, but they are not defining what it is. So if you could really quickly, I mean, uh, what is it?
0: I will say I totally agree with David that when people critique critical race theory from the right, what they basically mean is talking about race. They don't actually mean critical race theory. Critical race theory itself originates in legal theory. So it comes from the legal corners of academia. And its basic hypothesis is that the law is not sort of a neutral tool that we wield in an extra-racial fashion, but rather that racism is baked into the very laws and history of the U.S. And so we need to be interrogating race when we're thinking about supposedly neutral (laughs) questions of law, of policy, and of history.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. My understanding, and I first got exposed to critical race theory when I went to law school, literally the first year of law school, Georgetown had this interesting like law schools across the country, every law student takes their, uh, cor- you know, the the normal 1L courses. So that's, you know, criminal law, property, contracts, constitutional law, civil procedure, et cetera, et cetera. Georgetown had an alternative section called Section 3, which added a critical race theory was a part of that. They had, you know, more of a, um, the right would definitely hate Section 3. Let's just put it that way. I, I, <laughs> I wasn't in Section 3. I have a lot of friends that were in it and I learned a lot from them. Them, and they definitely opened my eyes to a lot of things that, that they were learning. It wasn't that they were taught something different; they were just kind of taught some things in the context. And I think critical race theory was a part of that. But basically, critical race theory is okay. How has racism shaped U.S. laws, and how has that impacted people's lives?
2: The way that I've seen some right-wing media talk about it is that it's making all of these white people feel bad. And <laughs> and I'm so so actually, David, it's kind of like what you say with gaslighting. It's like it's. Or maybe it's a straw, no, you know what? It's a straw man. Let's go with straw man. That it is saying the problems with critical race theory is that what it's doing is it's teaching white people that they're white supremacists. And isn't that awful? And then you want to stand back and like, yeah, that is awful to teach people that they're white supremacists. <laughs> and so people are falling for that straw man.
3: Even more than a straw man, it strikes me as an empty category or as an emptying of a category. So the term critical race theory is not empty, it refers to a very specific subdiscipline that has Just been mentioned grew out of critical legal uh, studies. But the way in which it's mobilized and, in particular, weaponized by the right, I think the success of that weaponization really depends on that term not really getting defined and not referring to anything concrete. Because once you put something concrete inside the category, then the attention shifts from the category as such to what it refers to. Mm -hmm. And at that point, then you have to talk about race and racism. And that's what the right doesn't want to do. So the term "critical race theorists" being used right now—it's really a deflection mechanism to talk about anything but critical race theory. <laughs> And so it strikes me that it's important to think about how the category is used and not just what it really means um, mm-hmm. for the people who are experts in it because most of the people who work on it wouldn't recognize what they do in the way in the way in which it's being described in the media.
0: Yeah, and I want to think a little bit more about what you just said David in terms of the feelings that you brought up Gwen because I think it's totally right that a lot of the right-wing criticisms of critical race theory have to do with this idea that it makes white people feel bad. And so I want to rest with that for a moment. Because first off, should we even say that that's what critical race theory is doing, right? Especially in its origins as a legal theory. I mean, the law... Attempts to exclude feelings from its domain altogether. And so, like, it's almost this weird permutation of the right wing accusation of these liberal snowflakes who just like care about their feelings too much. I think a left wing mm-hmm. critical race theorist could say, okay, I'm trying to talk about the way that structural racism has shaped. U.S. policy, and you're wanting me to focus on your feelings, right-wing snowflake. And so there's that component to it. And at the same time, I think there's truth to the fact that facing racism, the history of racism in the U.S. does sometimes make white people feel bad. But A, is that a bad thing? And B... I think we need to be really careful about misplacing the origins of those feelings and make it seem, making it seem like it's critical race theory or uh, Black people and people of color who are making the white people feel bad. So just to use an example from my own experience, as a white person who teaches some classes on race it can be really complicated and a lot of feelings can come up. Mm -hmm. But who am I to say that those feelings are more important than the history of racism in the U.S. and or the feelings of my students of color who have been contending with racism their entire lives. Like for me, a bit of discomfort and negotiation of my own white privilege is the least I can do as a a white person. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So even when bad feelings are coming up, okay, bad feelings come up. It's really not the end of the world. There's also a, a question here about which, Feelings get activated in this discussion
3: mm-hmm, because the way in which I've seen it, the feeling that often appears in the rhetoric of the right is they're trying to make me feel guilty. Uh, this kind of white guilt and a fear of white guilt. The sense that that I should not have to feel guilty for something that has happened before I was born, even if that thing continues and continues to privilege me. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of research in critical race theory about the problematic of white guilt. Yeah. And so it, it seems like it's a doubling effect that's happening where it's producing a lot of discussion about white guilt, but in the exact opposite direction than what critical race theory is theorist mm-hmm. uh, would want, you know, in, yeah. instead of thinking about white guilt and its dangers and maybe finding a better way for white people to contend with the history of racism from which they continue to, to derive benefit. Here, it's kind of a recognition that if we look at racism, we will feel guilty and we don't want to do that. So we won't look at it.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then also the idea of trying to make critical race theory illegal is in and of itself.
3: Oh, my God. The very yeah. <laughs> argument
2: that's being about yeah. it being baked into the legal system. Yes. I, yes. Can, I, can I ask a question? I, this is just back to the gaslighting because now that you say that you did an episode on that and it really resonated with people, I'm thinking I have seen the word gaslighting pop up so much more. And in your discussion of it, why is it up more? Is it Does it have to do with a cultural shift or an awareness or what makes it a hot topic now? Why, why, why?
0: Ellie, do you have thoughts about this? <laughs> so the term gaslighting comes from a 1940s play and film called Gaslight, where there's an abusive husband who's basically trying to convince his wife that she is crazy. But I know in academia recently, Rudy, you want to interject about that film?
1: Uh, no, I was just going to say it's a very well-known film noir, uh, Gwen. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a, I'm a film noir fan and it's just, you know, it's amazing A film noir nerd. And I've spoken <laughs> on that on many podcasts. It's amazing that that term is so it's become such a popular term now Mm -hmm. and it all started with that play and movie. So sorry, I just want to tip my hat to film (laughs) more.
0: Yeah. And I think within academia, it's, gotten a lot of traction within the past 10 years, I would say. Um, partly due to a conference I attended at Claremont McKenna a few years ago, and then also partly due to a special issue of Hypatia, the top journal in feminist philosophy that came out just last year. But I feel like there's probably a missing link between those super recent conferences and the film and play that came out ages ago.
3: <laughs> yeah, there's got to be something in between. Um, you know, I think
2: it's this idea of mansplaining, right? Like, I'm wondering if mm-hmm. That's, I, I'm, I'm almost wondering if it's maybe because you have a more diverse and open pool of people who are in the workforce, there's more people on the receiving end of it and recognizing it. And I'm wondering if first you've got mansplaining and now you've got gaslighting. That mm-hmm. is, because there are more women in positions that had in the past been with men. Like even, you know, Ellie, for us to just even be in philosophy, I mean, this is something... To have 50% of this podcast right now be two women is unusual. (laughs) That wouldn't have happened 100 years ago. Yeah, I wonder whether there
3: was a moment where there was a need to develop terms to name previously unnamed phenomena that were part of women's experience. And I think that the term mansplaining maybe kind of led the parade in this particular case where a number of people, I mean, women in particular said, yes, we didn't have a word for this. And because of that, we couldn't quite talk about it. We couldn't quite process it. And I just wonder whether that then led to people trying to name other aspects of their experience and gaslighting was yet another, but I mean, I don't really have any causal narrative here to add uh, substance to that claim.
0: Well, in the same way that sexual harassment, once that Mm -hmm. term came on the scene a few decades ago, suddenly gave voice to so many women's experiences. I wish gaslighting were as simple as mansplaining though, because I hear the parallelism that you two are drawing between them. And I, I agree with that. But I think when I actually think about the concepts themselves or the experiences themselves, they're so different because mansplaining is so easy to spot. (laughs) and so easy to take with a grain of salt or inwardly roll your eyes at. Whereas gaslighting can be so difficult to name, so difficult to figure out if it's even happening to you, right? because it exists in this really complex dimension of affective and verbal and behavioral interactions between people such that, we're trying to get to the truth of what happened, but the truth of what happened sometimes isn't an objective truth, right? And I think in the case of gaslighting, going back to your point earlier, David, so many gaslighters don't even know that they're gaslighting. And yeah, sure, a mansplainer doesn't know that they're mansplaining, but you can be like, well, literally what just happened is that I defined this idea and then you redefined it and made it seem like your own idea as opposed to gaslighting. It's like, you're doubting my own reality. No, you're doubting mine.
3: Yeah, I guess it it is harder to call out cases of gaslighting in part because they also happen in private settings in romantic contexts where the person that you're supposed to rely on the most suddenly becomes the one that is in question. And uh, that can be very difficult to navigate, you know, and also your, because your safety net becomes, your, becomes a source of the danger.
0: Yes. And also because part of the experience of gaslighting is precisely doubting yourself, right? And that may or may not be the case with mansplaining.
2: Yeah. I've also noticed in this same theme that there's a lot of discussion about toxic relationships and narcissistic relationships. Actually, Rudy and I, we got in touch with a psychologist who's going to talk about narcissism. In a couple of episodes, because I've also noticed that this is big. So I'm just wondering: is the structure of relationships changing, or you know, like why are there all these notions of toxicity, or like these are other catchphrases? What is your experience with that? Do you think that there's that there's a shift, or or is that something that you're hearing? I mean, that's also another word. I mean, I would defer to a psychologist here
0: probably, or maybe even a sociologist, but I would guess that part of this has to do with the emphasis on working on relationships that we see with what's sometimes known as a the therapeutic model of relationships, um, starting really in the 1970s. And so this relates a bit to my work on philosophy of love and philosophy of dating and intimate relationships. So in the 1970s and on, you see this rise of self-help literature geared towards towards couples to work on their relationships, right? To better themselves, better others. And more recently, you have a rise in attachment theory and people wanting to figure out in what ways their romantic relationships are reproducing patterns from childhood. And so I think there's that component. And then I would also say that millennials and Gen Z are very invested in mental health. And I think identifying toxic relationship dynamics is a major part of that.
2: When you're saying this time frame, I'm thinking it's because romantic relationships changed as opposed to being set up by your family and it's this partnership that you just get into. Whether or not you like each other is actually not nearly as relevant, <laughs> right? It's just a partnership, but now everybody's searching for the one. So people are engaged in more and more relationships where there's this there's this search for something other than partner, like a, an economic type of uh, partnership. There's some mm-hmm. other kind of a search, like a soulmate or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I'm um... wondering if we're just asking too much and people are in more and more relationships. Yeah, Yeah. broadly, historically
0: speaking, that is part of the trend, but I will say that the rise of what's known as the companionate marriage, this idea of your spouse being your soulmate, as opposed to its being an economic partnership, really gains traction in the mid to late 19th century. And then I would say what's more closely related to the rise of the sort of therapeutic relationship in the 1970s is influx of women in the workplace and realizing that they're not focused on their relationships with men as strongly as they were before. And, you know, that's, I think, true mostly of middle class and upper middle class folks um, who are the ones like reading and buying the self-help books. And so I'd want to put in that, that caveat about class. But I would, I would associate that a, a bit more with the rise of women in the workplace or the rise of middle-class women in the workplace. Although that does go back to this companion marriage that you see a bit earlier. But David, you I want to hear your thoughts too. Well, I mean, beyond
3: that, I think it is true that relationships are changing. And this is largely anecdotal, but I think it's also backed up by some sociological data that younger generations don't want the same relationship script that has been passed down through generations. You know, uh, Gwen, you mentioned like people wanting to find their one. you know, I have a lot of students, I meet a lot of younger people who are like, I'm actually not even looking for the one. Um, Maybe I'm looking for a multiple or for something that doesn't really fit a traditional box as far as what society recognizes as a romantic relationship. So I'm here thinking about uh, the rise of, you know, polyamorous relationships, the explosion of uh, open relationships, which in some ways, and alienated did a sequence in our podcast about relationship types in which we talk about some of these, in which Part of the new relationship format requires talking through desires mm-hmm. in a way that maybe is still considered taboo under the traditional model of marriage, where you cannot express certain things to your partner less that register as an attack on the relationship itself. And so I do think there are a lot of exciting developments in new relationship types coming to the surface and people feeling like, you know, it's not that they want access into a category that already exists, they want to create new categories.
2: What Do you think of the fact that we're living longer? Like, what if they're saying with bioengineering that it's possible to expand the human life expectancy to about 150 years? And so, I always ask my students, What do you think would happen to marriage? Like, would we really blame somebody if they're 90 and they're like, You know what? I just want somebody else. I just like maybe the marriage was actually, you know, this relationship that's authorized essentially by the state fit a different time frame. But if you were to expand the human life expectancy, it would be different, I think. David's going to go. Uh, Rudy, what are you uh, thinking? you
0: got a thought, yeah. Rudy, <laughs> see, what do you Rudy, think? About Rudy's this? thinking. Yes.
2: Rudy, what uh, about when you're uploaded? Do you do you have yeah. to No, right. <laughs> to what about, about when this. you're when you're all uploaded?
1: <laughs> You know, we actually dressed a little bit of this on the episode where Death Cafe we talked about when oh, i when yeah, I live yeah, yeah. oh, when I live for three million years, will my wife be offended if uh, I decided to go see other people in year two million? <laughs> I, I don't know uh, you know, God willing, she lives that long too, but in all seriousness, I mean, I think David's absolutely right I, It's It's very clear that we as a society are becoming more accepting of alternative relationships. I'm 44 now. In my 44 years, I think in the last four particular years, I've learned more about people that I know very well, some that I'm related to that are in alternative relationships that are in polyamorous open relationships. And that, I think that's the tip of the iceberg. I think that it's just going to explode for the next 10 to 20 years. And so the way that I approach it is, okay, how do I talk about this with my children? That's the, that's always, that's always the context of everything. One of the many reasons why I'm on the show is I need to educate myself better, way better than, than I was when I was a child. And uh, the box that I was raised in no fault of my parents I mean they were immigrants and it was a different time and I went to Catholic school my whole life and I'm trying to expand my own horizons so I can be a better parent uh, for my children. So your question is actually a really re- relevant one, Gwen, because God willing, we do live, we do live longer. I mean, I don't plan on dying ever. Uh, I plan on, I plan on. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm going to go for it. Um, I, I've managed to keep my hair with a lot of work and a lot of positive thinking. And trust me, if you've seen any of the men in my family, you'll be like, that dude is a magician. How the hell did he figure that out? So I'm going to, I'll figure out this death thing sooner or later. Now, whether or not, hopefully my marriage lasts that long hopefully my wife can stand me for that long do i think society at that point if we are living longer will be more accepting yeah i mean we're already we're already going in the direction of of more open relationships of yeah. reconstructing what works so i think when we do get to that point 40 50 whatever years. Lord, even knows what relationships are gonna look like. I mean, one thing about me is I I became obsessed with the future because uh, I work in transportation. I do transportation finance, and there's just all these crazy things, crazy things happening all at the same time. Driverless cars, electric vehicles, whole bunch of things. And, I, and I'm and i like constantly talking about, we're so focused on like what things will look like over the next three, four or five years. But if we don't start laying the foundation for the major changes, which are obviously going to happen for the next 30 or 40, 50 years, we might make a couple of missteps and, and we can really advance in, in the transportation, like transportation 3.0 and the future of cities and the future of living if we lay the foundation now. So roundabout way of, I love hearing these discussions of the observations, that what we consider as a society uh, of a relationship is already changing. I need to take that in. And so I can educate my children to lay that foundation for them to be even more accepting, more accepting than what it was like when I when I was growing up. So I think we just all need to be more accepting. Not, and I don't want I there's some danger to each his own. Well, you know, that's okay. You know, because I know Not that I'm friends with them, but I know a lot of racists that say, oh, I just don't like that. I know a lot of, I've met some homophobes in my life that have said, oh, well, you know, my religion says X. Well, okay. You know, if you want to be that, if you want to be homophobic, if you want to be a racist, I don't want to be around you. I don't like to just attribute, oh, to each his own to that. That kind of rubs hard up against, you know, how are we accepting of relationships and the changing of that? And I don't know. I'm trying to, I'm trying to educate myself to be more accepting and kind of balance that so I can teach my children.
2: I do think it has to do with women having more choices. But I mean, I know for myself, a couple of relationships I was in and I was trying to make things work and then one day it just hit me, I don't have to do this. You know what I mean? Like, And I don't think that my <laughs> grandmother would have had that same yeah. moment. It was for me where I was just like, I was not happy and I was trying and I was trying and it just dawned on me like, oh, I can do whatever, I, I don't have to do this. I'm okay. And I think that with people when they have, I think a lot of it could have to do with economic freedom too and Mm -hmm. careers. A relationship is part of your life instead of your entire life. Like, you know, Rudy, your wife is a a surgeon. I mean, for a long time, a a woman would want to identify herself by marrying the doctor, by marrying Mm -hmm. the surgeon. (laughs) And now your wife is like, fuck, I am the surgeon. It's a completely different dynamic. And I think-
0: When we're thinking about this in terms of open relationships or polyamorous relationships, what we're seeing right now is, to my mind, a pretty interesting moment as somebody who works on philosophies of love because... It's a very different moment than we had in, say, the 1960s and 70s with the free love and swingers movements, because that was this kind of view of like, oh, just have sex with whoever you want, et cetera, et cetera. And there was a real feminist backlash to those movements because they tended to presume that women and men were meeting on equal or even playing fields when they were engaging in those free love and swingers practices. And of course, we know that's not at all the case because. We're all usually bringing to the table in relationships, if we're, you know, in heterosexual relationships, very deeply rooted patriarchal assumptions. And those are assumptions about who does the emotional labor, who does the work of maintaining the relationship. And there's a ton of research that, even up to the present day, it's usually women who are taking on the vast majority of the work of maintaining relationships. And so, There is a burgeoning field called feminist love studies that's interdisciplinary and that I'm sort of a part of, but also like trying to be a part of. (laughs) Like I haven't been to their conference yet, but I'm trying to get there. (laughs) Um, Which argues, going back to your question, Rudy, about the ethics of polyamorous relationships and open relationships, that regardless of whether you're an open relationship, a polyamorous relationship or a monogamous relationship, whatever it might be, we all need to be working on unpacking our sexist, gender-based assumptions, sim- sort of similarly to the way that we all need to be unpacking our latent racist beliefs. you know, And that's why we need something like critical race theory, or that's why we need something like feminism, because we're always coming to our individual interpersonal relationships with background cultural imprints and assumptions that we need to unlearn.
1: I couldn't agree more with you. And I'm, I guess I'm just trying to say I'm, I'm the living, breathing experiment of that. And I'm, I'm not trying to put my parents on the spot. I'm not trying to put my education on the spot. I think we were all raised that way, especially mm-hmm. we we're born in the 1970s and grew up in the 80s and the 90s. Look, things were different, you know? <laughs> uh, so and things are evolving. They're going into a particular direction. And I see that that was why I was talking about the whole transportation thing is you know I, I I'm seeing the way things are going towards the future so I'm trying to be I'm trying to unpack myself I'm trying to familiarize myself I'm trying to be I'm trying to educate myself because I am accepting I mean I believe me I'm literally especially when it comes to relationships you know Gwen and I have had pr- plenty of private conversations about this I mean she knows that but it's all about well how do I articulate that in an educational way to my own children and not just the oh everything's fine you know you don't <laughs> Bother, but no, I want to. I, I'd like to explain. Well, you know, some relationships are just one man, one woman. Some relationships are multiple, and, and you're going to come across that because our children are going to be exposed. They are going to have friends. They are going to have maybe lovers that came from polyamorous homes. I predict that it's going to happen, guaranteed. Because as I, I see, it's already happening. So how do I explain that to my own children or to my parents and to, you know, the boomers and, and, and explain all of that. So,
2: you know, Bravo, if you want to try to explain that to a boomer, you know, I think, <laughs> I, I don't think that's Rudy. I think, You would just be right in the face. Then all that great hair that you've worked to keep is going to be gone. (laughs) Well, I have to say,
0: my mom's friends loved our series on open relationships and polyamory. And they're all boomers. Yeah. (laughs) They had some heated Zoom debates about these episodes.
2: (laughs) Oh, that's great.
3: This makes me think about just how difficult that work of unlearning, you know, those habits really is. And there is research to suggest that the older you get, the more stuck in your habits you get. And that's true for all of us, right? And so it becomes even harder and harder. And so going back to this, um, you know, futuristic scenario in which we live to 180 years, part of me is like, "Er, I don't know. I, you know, some people say that the best Fuel for social progress is the coffin. So maybe we just like <laughs> need to live our 85 years and then oh get God. out of the way for the next generation. Because age itself, just the amount of time that you live, is one of the ways in which inequities get sedimented in our culture. You know, mm. sometimes people talk about older generations being more conservative, and they attribute that to people becoming more conservative as they age, which I think is actually inaccurate. I think it's because people who are more conservative tend to have more resources and they tend to live longer, right? Like all the radicals of their generation, all the people who lived precarious existences, they died. And so only the the sort of more affluent get to live on and on. And so the longer that you stretch that scenario, the more you get that intensification of wealth Mm -hmm. and privilege. So then the question is like, who gets to live that long? And, you know, maybe it's time to, to pass the torch.
2: That's an interesting Yeah, it's point. not
3: Huey
0: Newton who's living until 80. Oh
3: yeah.
2: my goodness. Okay, yeah. No, that's a really good point. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much for this conversation. I'm going to link Overthink into the show notes, but could you just let people know how to get in touch with you?
0: Yeah, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at overthink underscore pod. Or you can email us at dearoverthink at gmail.com. What is and your... we love for you to listen to our podcast. Yes, yes. It's, it's a great
2: podcast. I'm just curious, Do you, what are a couple of topics that you have coming up?
0: Ooh, well, mm. we have one coming up on genomics and disability. And we just
3: recorded one on the infamous philosophical thought experiment of brain in a vat. Are you a brain in a vat connected to a laboratory and don't
1: even know it? Rudy, you would love that one. Yeah, no, I would.
2: And thank you for
0: paving the way for, you know, other philosophers podcasting. I feel like since you got into it, there have been a lot of folks, including us, who've gone into podcasting and you were one of the first philosophy folks to get into it. Oh,
2: thank you. Oh, that feels good. That feels good to hear. All right. Well, have a good day.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much.
2: Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any questions about this episode or any other episodes, or if you'd like to become a sponsor of the show, you can get in touch, goodisinthedetailspod at gmail.com. If you are enjoying the show, please rate and review it. Just scroll down the bottom at Apple Podcasts and hit that five-star review. And if you would like to support the show, we're on Patreon, patreon patreon.com slash goodisinthedetails. Okay, we have lots coming up for you next We have a discussion about robot sex and we're going to have a discussion about narcissism. Ah, great episodes. Until next time, bye.